Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. On this episode of the show, I continue working through my prior paper dealing with Genesis 1 as a polemical literary framework. If you enjoyed this episode or any of the content here, please feel free to click on the Become a Sponsor link on the blog page or by giving your gift of any amount on Patreon. If you don't have the funds to help support the show financially, why not head over to iTunes and give the show a review. The show rating helps to land this podcast higher in search results, so you can help promote it that way. Well, with that said, let's jump back into reading through Genesis 1 as a polemical literary framework. If you haven't listened to the prior episode on this, we're going to be picking up midstream, kind of a mid-thought. So uh, pause this episode and go back and listen to the prior episode before continuing with this one. So with that said, enjoy the show. Literary Structure of Genesis 1 We can now turn our attention to what exactly is happening in the text of Genesis 1 with regard to its textual structure. I am unable in this small space to interact with all of the views of Genesis 1. Therefore, what I, what I view to be the strongest will be presented at this time. This episode, this paper, is not meant to be exhaustive by any means, nor will it engage with several of the robust criticisms of this view, but will serve simply as a primer to demonstrate the kind of readings of this chapter which many find most compelling, myself included. In his 1958 book, Kingdom Prologue, and in his later paper uh, on the topic of Genesis 1, uh, Meredith Klein developed and argued for the view that has come to be known as the framework model. Since then, this view has been adopted by many scholars, including Bruce Waltke, Mark Furtado, Mark Ross, and Lee Irons. Klein argued that the structure of the text follows a kind of non-literal literary pattern that sees the first three days as spheres or kingdoms, which are then populated in days four through six. Proponents of the framework model will often point to some of the contradictions that arise from a strictly historicist or chronological approach to the days, as well as other theological problems. For example, what sort of ethical problems arise if God created the earth not just with the appearance of maturity, but with the illusion of having a history that it did not in fact have? So, for example, this often comes up with the question of Adam, right? Adam has uh, the appearance of age, and so therefore the earth has the appearance of age, or so the young earth creationist argument goes. However, we could ask, why does the earth have craters? 
from meteors that would have wiped out all life on Earth for hundreds of thousands to millions of years. Well, if the Earth is only 10,000 years old, those meteors could not have actually struck the Earth. And so there would be appearance of historical events that wouldn't have actually happened in real history. Now, in addition, how can there be three literal 24-hour Earth days, one complete rotation in reference to the sun with a morning and an evening, when God does not create the sun and moon until day four, expressly with the purpose of marking out days to, quote, separate day from light, end quote. That's 114. We'll not be able to explore these questions within this episode, but for now, let me note that Klein would also argue that there is an inadequate understanding of providence that takes place in the young earth creationist views of Genesis 1 when he writes, quote, the view that Genesis 1 is chronological operates with the assumption that God did not operate through normal providence in creating the world. But Genesis 2.5 goes against such a view since it describes a time on the earth when the earth was without vegetation because there was not yet rain. This demonstrates that divine providence was at work during the creation period. Thus, Genesis 1 cannot be strictly chronological. End quote. Mostly, however, the case for framework model is positive rather than negative. It's not primarily a response to the problems of young earth creationism or old earth creationism that drive the framework model, but a concern for understanding the census literalis of the text within redemptive history. The question is not concerning the problems with a young earth creationist or old earth creationist view of the meaning of yom, but with but what meaning the original meant for his immediate audience to take from the text in their direct historical setting. The first thing that Klein and others would like to draw our attention to is the genre of Genesis 1. If Genesis 1 is a straightforward account of history, which we'll argue shortly that it's not, then it may be placed aside the, alongside the hard sciences and ask the question of how the cosmos materially came into being. That is, Genesis 1 would be, on this view, the kind of literature that asks the same questions as the astronomy or geology textbooks. However, if Genesis 1 is not strictly historical in its narrative, then it would be placed within the social sciences because its primary concern would be with who was involved. At this point, however, for the hard literalist readers, this will lead them to make a sharp distinction between literal and allegorical. So far, I've been careful to not describe the passages allegorical or symbolic, but rather non-literal. It's my view that the author was not using allegory. The creation of light is not some allegory or symbol meant to represent some mystical spiritual truth, such as the gospel being the light to all nations of the earth or something along those lines. Rather, the author of Genesis was telling us exactly what he meant. Yahweh created the light and the luminaries. This, as we will see soon, was meant to serve a sharp and severe polemical purpose against the pagan concepts of deity that surrounded them and that they would soon encounter when the children of Israel entered the land of Canaan. The days, then, are not allegory or symbolism, but they point us to the very real truth that God is creator, and the text simply tells us this in a highly stylized manner. 
At this point, something should be said about how the formless and void clause in Genesis 1-2 is an important interpretive feature for a literary polemical approach to the text. When we come to the earth in Genesis 1-2, we find that the earth is, quote, formless and void, end quote. That is, in the Hebrew, it is tohu vabohu. Here, a land, that is, erets, lies without function, entirely uninhabitable. In order for God to have a relationship with people, there must be a habitable area for that to occur. We'll take a brief moment to look at how these terms are used elsewhere in the Old Testament. What does it mean that the earth is formless and void? Tohu is used in other contexts to refer to a place that is entirely uninhabitable, a completely barren place. Deuteronomy 32.10 states, quote, In a desert land he found them, in a barren land, and a howling tohu, a howling waste, end quote. The concept here is that of an absolute barren wasteland that cannot sustain life. Bohu is also used in Isaiah 45.18, speaking directly of creation. Quote, For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it bohu, that is, He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. End quote. Here, Isaiah is giving us a glimpse into exactly what bohu meant in Genesis 1-2. It's contrasted with the land being inhabited, and indeed inhabitable. When God created the land, he intended for it to be inhabitable and to be inhabited by people, and not remain uninhabited, empty, and void, or bohu. Jeremiah, in fact, places these terms together to describe the land after the exile in Jeremiah 4, 23-26. He writes, quote, I looked on the earth, and behold, it was tohu vabohu. It was without form and void. And to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. End quote. Jeremiah compares the exile of the land, the Eretz, to the act of uncreation. That, that is, the devastation that occurred in the Assyrian and Babylonian conquests of the land have returned it to a state of tohu vabohu, of being completely formless and void, an uninhabitable, barren wasteland. The idea that Jeremiah was presenting was not that the land had ceased to exist, but that it had returned to an uninhabited state of barrenness. The hope held out in Jeremiah of a return to the land would be that God would make the land habitable again and allow Israel to re-inhabit the land. The return to the land was compared to the act of creation. We can see why Klein and Waltke and others describe the structure as following this sort of pattern, where a sphere is made to be inhabitable, and then it becomes inhabited. If you read the paper, there's a, a, a handy little chart here where on the left-hand side it has days 1 through 3, 
and on the right hand it has days four through six. The left hand is what Klein calls the creation kingdoms, what Waltke calls the static spheres. It is the forming of the formless. So day one is the forming of the light, day two is the forming of the sky or the waters above, day three is the formation of the seas, land, uh, dry land, and vegetation. Days four through six, then, are what Klein calls the creature kings, or what Waltke calls the sphere populations, or it's the filling of the void. So day four places the luminaries uh, in, in contrast with the light. So you have the kingdom of the light, which is ruled over by the luminaries. Uh, in day five, you have the fish and the fowl, which are the, the creature kings over the kingdoms uh, of the waters above and the waters below. And then day six, you have the animals and man, which are the creature kings of the dry land and the vegetation. Klein and Waltke both show us the relationship between the parallel triads of days. The first three days show the creation and preparation of kingdoms and spheres as a kind of environment, and in the following three days, populating those environments with the proper inhabitants of them. This means that days one through three are dealing directly with forming what is formless in N1-1. No longer is the cosmos formless, but now it has distinct form and structure. God has now made an orderly cosmos fit for populations of living beings to live in, which also means that days four through six are meant to show that the heavens are no longer void. They're no longer empty, but rather are inhabited. Days 1 through 6 show that Yahweh has acted to make creation habitable and to populate the created order with creatures according to their spheres. So he has made the creation habitable and has habitated it. One of the issues that many people will have with this view is that it does not answer the question of chronology. For the young earth creationists and old earth creationists, Trying to divine the chronology of the events and their place in the geographic history is of utmost importance. On a literary framework view, uh, like the one presented here, this is simply not an issue. The days could all be contemporaneous, as Augustine argued, with their unfolding such that God could have created the light at the same time that he created the luminaries. All six days could have occurred at the same time or independently vastly separated by eons in between. It's simply not possible to decide a chronology with a literary view of the text because the author was not trying to answer those very modern questions. This means that framework, the framework model advocates like myself will often just sit on the sidelines of young earth and old earth and evolutionary debates baffled as to what's unfolding in front of us. Waltke also addresses the concern by some critics of this view that it would mean we are reading the text as allegory or myth when he writes in, uh, that Genesis 1 is, quote, written in precise prose, whereas other biblical passages bearing on cosmogony are poetic, imaginative, and not didactic, end quote. A highly structured arrangement does not mean that the text is non-chronological, or categorically not straightforward history. It's simply told in a highly literary structural way and, in this case, for a polemical purpose. Genesis 1 and the Myths of Egypt While more than a century of biblical scholarship has focused on the relationship of Genesis to Mesopotamian literature, such as the Enuma Elish, 
This episode in paper will place priority on its relationship to Egyptian mythology. Scholars such as A.H. Sace and A.S. Yehuda began this work nearly a century ago, and many, such as Arya Tobin and J.H. Tagay, continue that work today. There are numerous examples of polemical engagements by use of allusions between Genesis 1 and the myths of Egypt that we will explore. These allusions are more than mere parallelomania by their adherence to the three criteria listed above, lexical or verbal, structural, and conceptual or thematic. Firstly, there are the lexical or verbal parallels between the two sources. We saw this previously in the section dealing with how the Exodus borrowed from the overall lexical milieu of Egyptian religious culture and the borrowing of terms like mighty or strong, hand or arm. However, we can observe even more similarities in the creation accounts from both cultures. The most striking of these parallels is the use of the phrase, in the beginning. In both Genesis 1 and in Egyptian cosmology, the phrase refers to a specific moment in the past when all of the cosmological history began. For the Egyptians, this was the moment when the Nun was made self-aware by the stirring of the primordial waters, ultimately bringing a tomb, the creator god, into existence. In Genesis 1, it refers to the point in time when Yahweh, the creator god, spoke light into existence and drove off the darkness from the surface of the primordial waters. In fact, there's a root comparison between the two as well. In Hebrew, the term Bereshith and the, uh, and the root word Raos, which means head. The Egyptian expression comes from the word hippi, which means first occasion or instance, and its root hip, uh, which also means head. The author of Genesis was using the same conceptual connections as the Egyptian myth writer. So while the Hebrew and Egyptian terms are not directly etymologically related, they clearly are conceptually linked. This parallel exhibits the theme that has been under examination. We can see in the Egyptian myth that the creator god Atum was brought about after the beginning, while in Genesis 1, Yahweh is pictured as being causally prior to the beginning. Here, the author of Genesis is unambiguously showing us that Yahweh is to be understood as an uncreated being, the fount of all existence from which all other beings find their Genesis, pun intended. Secondly, we can explore numerous structural parallels between Genesis 1 and the Egyptian myths. This is an area that is particularly important in our comparisons of Genesis with Egyptian myths, because while Genesis 1 may have some conceptual connections to literature like the Enuma Elish and the Atrahasis, I can never pronounce that one, it shares no structural links to them. However, with the Egyptian myths, there are many strong structural similarities where the author not only shared concepts with the Egyptian uh, that, that text that they were polemicizing, but actually organized their narratives along roughly the same literary framework. The strongest example is seen in the connection between Genesis 1 and the Memphis Shabaka stone. 
The, this Memphite text was most likely produced during the New Kingdom period, or the 16th to the 11th century BCE, and would have been likely prior, but possibly concurrent with the composition of Genesis. The similarities can be cataloged as follows, and there's a chart here. Now, if I were to tell you this narrative, that there was a period of uh, pre-creation uh, condition where everything was a lifeless chaos and that there was a watery deep, and that above the waters moved the breath or the, the wind of the creator deity. The, the word then creates the light. From the midst of the waters, a primordial hill or land emerges. Procreation then produces the sky uh, when uh, over the earth, and that there's the formation of the uh, the ocean uh, by the separation from the land. There's then the formation of the ground by this separation, and the sun is also created to to rule the world. The earth then sprouts plants and fish and birds and reptiles and land animals and so forth, and then finally. There's the creation of humans uh, to serve the gods. Now, and then finally, the, the, one of the deities rests uh, on, at the very end in satisfaction. Now, there's clearly some small variations, but that's roughly the structure of Genesis 1. Well, that was actually the Memphis Shabaka stone. This, the chart that's in the paper, if you'd like to look it up, shows us that while there are some slight modifications to the overall order, there was plainly a strong familiarity with the Shavaka stone, or at least with the mythology it presented, that was present during the time of the composition of Genesis 1. There are other Egyptian texts, such as the Hermopolis coffin texts and pyramid texts from the Old Kingdom period, though they may have also been active during the Middle and Early Kingdom periods. Strange notes, quote, the similarities in detail and structure are too close to be accidental." End quote. The final tool for evaluation is thematic or conceptual connections, which are among the most robust of the parallels. These are areas where the biblical author seems to be familiar with the theology and motifs of the Egyptian myths and borrows them for his polemical purposes. First, we can observe the use of the four elements of the pre-creation cosmos, Johnston notes that, quote, the four cosmic phenomena of Genesis 1-2 may be polemically demythologized counterparts of the four members of the Ogdode of Hermopolis, the so-called chaos gods, end quote. The four primal elements of the Egyptian pre-creation schema neatly parallel the four gen the Genesis narrative elements. Johnston lays it out as follows. In the Hebrew, you have the empty and formless, tohu vabohu. You have darkness, you have the watery deep, and you have the spirit or the wind of God. In the Egyptian, you have boundless indifferentiation, which is roughly the same as empty and formless. You have infinite darkness, which is keku in, in the Egyptian, which is, again, roughly the same as darkness. You have the primordial water, uh, which is none in, in, the, in the Egyptian. And then finally, you have the divine wind, or the soul of the creator god, which is the Amun. <coughs> Excuse me. However, while the author of Genesis may have borrowed such a conceptual structure, they unmistakably had a polemical difference to present. 
rather than being theogonic as a myth in which creation resulted from the haphazard action of battling or copulating deities, which depending on which myth you're looking at, the author was demythologizing creation from those myths by showing that it was only by the intentional and purposeful activity of the one creator that the cosmos was brought into order. This difference would have major theological dissimilarities with the Egyptian polytheistic worldview. Another thematic connection is the role of the supernatural light in the comparative narratives. In the Hermopolis tradition, after a long period of nearly infinite darkness, the god Atum emerged out of the primordial waters, the Nun, and being a sun deity, manifested himself as pure light before the creation of the sun. This fueled the Egyptian myth that the supernatural light from these primordial gods is what dispelled the infinite darkness. This abnormality in the existence of light prior to the creation of the sun likely explains the long-debated nature of the light in the first few days of creation prior to the creation of the luminaries on day four in the Genesis account. However, the author of Genesis is careful not to attribute to the light to the creation of a deity, as in the Egyptian myths, but rather that it was created by divine fiat, that is, by divine command, let there be light. This meant that the author was keen to show that, unlike Ra Atom, Yahweh was not brought into existence and did not result in an act of self-creation, but was himself pre-existent and was responsible for bringing into being even the first light, and that light itself was not divine. Johnson again notes that this, quote, is a case of the Hebrew author indulging in a bit of one-upmanship. Yahweh is superior to Ra, Egypt's, Egypt's god of light, end quote. That one-upsmanship just is polemical intent described throughout this present work. Another strong conceptual parallel between Genesis 1 and the Egyptian mythological milieu is that of the creation via divine command, or fiat. For decades, scholars have attempted to compare Yahweh's action of creation via divine command to that of Marduk in the Enuma Elish, a Babylonian creation text. In this text, the god Marduk displays his power by verbal stunts, where his words can wreck and create by bringing images in and out of sight on, on, on his command. That's a quote, by the way, from the text, wreck and create. The problem here is that these verbal tricks have nothing to do with creation. The Enuma Elish has creation as the brutal result of tearing apart the dead body of the goddess Tiamat, However, creation by divine command was a staple of Egyptian mythology, dating all the way back to the coffin texts of the Old Kingdom period, roughly 2686 to 2188 BCE, such as uh, coffin text 2.23 and coffin text 2.42 to 43. Hofmeyer notes, quote, while the doctrine of creation in response to divine command is widespread in Egyptian literature, it is not to be found in Babylonian cosmologies." End quote. The comparison becomes even more explicit in the Memphite theology of the Shavaka stone, which we referenced earlier, 
which was, as noted above, likely prior to or roughly contemporaneous with the early dating of the composition of Genesis, the New Kingdom period, which is about 1740 to about 1100 BCE, where Ptah, the creator god, brings about creation by a conception of his heart or his thoughts and a command of his tongue, that is speech. This concept of creation via divine command so permeates the Genesis creation account that the statements of Yahweh form the very framework on which the creation account is mounted. Two other major themes should be mentioned in brief that could give further support to the polemical picture being painted. They are the image of an emerging land from receding waters and the act of separating the land from the sky. These are strong and persistent themes in Egyptian cosmic geography, so it is not surprising that we should find them in the Genesis account, given all the other connections that we have observed so far. Like in the previous examples, we can detect a major shift in the rejection of the deification of natural entities by the author of Genesis, and their intentional recasting of the theme to show that Yahweh is the one true creator God acting unilaterally rather than these features being brought about by polytheistic, polytheistic chaotic behaviors. Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, feel free to email me at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com, visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com, or stop on by the Freed Thinker Podcast group page on Facebook. Join me next time as we continue the series dealing with the polemical literary framework of Genesis 1. Good night, and God bless.